so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Kevin Smith is a gifted communicator, especially when it comes to talking about racial unity within the church. Speaking from his experience, he shares about being a black pastor in a predominantly white church. His story is helpful for us as we seek to foster diversity in our churches. We hope you're encouraged by this message. It's a little awkward when your friends think you're crazy. It's a little awkward when your friends think you're strange. Why in the world would a black pastor want to move to a mostly white congregation? Especially after you've spent years answering the question, why in the world would a black pastor want to be Southern Baptist? Sometimes there's an apologetic that black Southern Baptists engage in that many of our white brothers perhaps aren't even aware of. I rarely, 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 matter of fact, I've never heard a white brother's whiteness question. But I don't know if you know it or not, a lot of times some of our black brothers in the Southern Baptist Convention, we can have our blackness question. I mean, you've been somewhat exposed to it before, perhaps. Perhaps you remember the 2008 presidential campaign early on when, you know, people were asking whether or not then-Senator Barack Obama was black enough to be considered the first black president. So blackness can be weighted and graded in a way that whiteness just isn't. If you got the look, you got the look. Matter of fact, it's so superficial at the look level that throughout American history, some people from other ethnicities have been able to pass. Because it's not really about content, it's just about the look. But blackness is judged on a few different things, ideology, philosophy, solidarity, things like that that are more than just the look. And so you often get the question, man, why in the world would you want a pastor in a white congregation? When I was making the transition, I had good, well-intentioned, godly brothers I love right now. And I really value their input, and they helped me in the decision-making process with, with, with more theological and, and biblical kind of questions. Hey, brother, the black church needs strong, expository preachers. You are an expositor. You're not a guy doing this or a guy doing this, a new guy doing this. You need to be in the black church. Mm. That guy wasn't questioning my ethnicity. That guy was thinking about hermeneutics in the pulpit in the, quote, historic black church. Well, my motivation is driven by who I am. 
My motivation is driven by who I've been, what I've been exposed to, but mostly my motivation is driven by (laughs) my grandmother's bad hermeneutics. When I say my grandmother's bad hermeneutics, my grandmother say, look, Kevin, if you call yourself a Christian, someone who's following Jesus, don't be like a lot of these people that they don't know anything about Jesus. They don't know what he taught. They don't know what he did. And, and this was my grandmother's hermeneutic, God rest her soul. She said, at least make sure you know the red letters. <laughs> I mean, there's a certain person here, probably of a certain age, like, red letters, what is he talking about? (laughs) And one day, reading through the red letters, I don't even remember when it wasn't overwhelming to me. Jesus prays in John 17, around the 21st verse, Father, May they, meaning his followers, the present disciples there and the disciples who would believe on his message through them, may they be one, Father, as I am in you and you are in me, those Trinitarian implications there. But it has this strong missiological thrust, so that the world may know that you have sent me. And so somewhere since college, I've just been overwhelmed that the lack of oneness and unity among those who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ in the United States of America undercuts the missiological thrust we say we have. And so I've always been driven by that. I've always thanked the Lord for older models, people like Lincoln Bingham in the state of Kentucky, a man whose grandfather was a slave, and who's been committed for decades to pursuing the unity of God's people in the body. Now, I don't tell everyone to pursue my course. I mean, I think I'm uniquely me. I grew up in Washington, D.C., grew up in Prince George's County, home of the largest black middle class. Marion Barry was the mayor of the nation's capital. So I I grew up in a comfortably black environment, went to D.C. public schools and elementary school, went to uh, Maryland public schools and junior high, uh, went to DeMatha Catholic High School and uh, mostly white Catholic school and high school. So just was exposed to a variety of things. In Washington, D.C., there's Embassy Row. So you get to meet people from every nation. You get to meet people from all kinds of languages. So, I mean, there's a certain kind of diversity It's just in my makeup that kind of suits me to feel comfortable being in a lot of different places. And so I looked at that, and I value background. I I, I believe in sovereignty with a big S. So I think your background matters. I think where your church is geographically located matters. I, I don't believe there's a lot of randomness in the methodical God who would tell the Israelites how long the pieces of the tabernacle should be. And so I'm made for this. I'm made for this. I would have been able to articulate that in a clearer manner, uh, a more clear manner, if, 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 you know, 20 years ago I would have had Brian LaRich's book right now, you know, Right Color, Wrong Culture. But I was like, I'm made for this. By God's good grace, I spent time in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where my wife is from as a church planner fully funded, fully supported by the Tennessee Baptist Convention. 
But Chattanooga had some outstanding parachurch ministries, one being the Chattanooga Resource Foundation, and one of their missions was to connect churches of different denominations and different ethnicities as regards the pastor. And they would have these partnerships between a white church and a black church. Now, admittedly, a lot of these partnerships were partnerships on paper. We'll come together once a year and we'll do our thing and have a joint service. But actually, Bill Mason, a Southern Baptist pastor in Chattanooga, Tennessee, we became good friends. And when we became good friends, our families became friends. And when we became good friends, we did more than just having a joint service every now and then. Our women in our churches would get together and pray and eat soup and all those kind of things. And our men would get together and go on men's retreats. And, you know, I knew the Lord was doing something then. I mean, you know, some black guys go out in the woods with some white guys at night. I said, the Lord is working in this place. And then one year we rented a bus and we sent our high schoolers, our teenagers, down to the Florida Panhandle uh, to Johnny Hunt's, one of his summer camps down there. And that's when I knew we were in the sweet spot. Because these black parents and these white parents were putting their teenagers on a bus to go to Florida to be at the beach in a, in a kind of puberty hormonal time, and they realized that some stuff could go down, and they were cool with that. Somebody black could come back with a white girlfriend or a white boyfriend. Somebody white could come back with a black girlfriend or a black boyfriend. And the parents were like, see y'all, have a good time. Enjoy Brother Johnny. Get saved. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and so one thing I want to stress in my, from my own testimony, and I've seen it to be true, is that we need to think at systematic levels. We need to think at the denominational level. We need to think at the state convention and the associational level. But the reason why the local church is important because the most foundational level for us to think is at the personal relational level. I still want to Trillia's lines that I've been using for the last two or three months since she wrote it. You will approach me differently or you will respond to me differently when we're sitting across from one another versus when we're on Twitter or Facebook. I was motivated by Jesus' prayer. I was motivated by Paul's command that we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. I have a little weird kind of piece of my story. Uh, I'm Southern Baptist, but I actually did my MDiv at the Church of God Theological Seminary. And my best friend growing up, his father was a Kojic pastor. So I have better pneumatology than most evangelicals. I mean, most of y'all, if somebody asks you about the Holy Spirit, your answer is, I ain't Pentecostal, I ain't charismatic. That ain't no pneumatology. And so I was always open to the mysterious nature of the fact that whatever really is going to be done has to be done by God. For example, in marriage, when the two shall be made one flesh, that's a work of God by his spirit. And so on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, they were all in one place and on one accord. And then the spirit moved like a mighty rushing wind. And we do a lot of praying for revival. We do a lot of praying for the moving of the spirit of the Lord. But if it's required that they be on one accord, then to pray from discord is a futile prayer. So I was burdened by that. Why high view? 
Well, I thought we needed some models in Southern Baptist life uh, that are different than some of our previous models. We have good, healthy, multi-ethnic church plant models, and much of that is geared off of the new city model that a lot of us learn from the PCA. There's another Kevin Smith here. I'm Kevin Smith, the Baptist. He's Kevin Smith, the Presbyterian. I want y'all to know one of them has snuck in among us. <clears throat> I also want y'all to know I'm younger than him, so he's Kevin the older. <laughs> so he's not mad. I told y'all he's a Presbyterian. He's mad. I told y'all he's older. <laughs> I wanted a model other than our church planning models. And then also, I wanted a model where, and Eric Mason has said this, and many other people said this, one of the things that has to be a part of multi-ethnicity and really the unity of God's people is uh, what does it look like when people of other ethnicities submit to black leadership? Um, we, we, we've had models where, uh, you know, if you watch TV broadcasts, we've had churches for a good while where there's been a sizable black population. I, I mean, when I was a little boy, uh, b- before I even understood what Charles Stanley was preaching, before I even really got into that, I used to just tell my dad, look at all these black people in this church. I was like, what's First Baptist Atlanta? But what are those black people in there? And so I wanted a model where leadership reflected that as well. And the Lord just provided a gracious opportunity as the former pastor, Dr. Ezell, uh, moved to the North American Mission Board and the senior pastor that they called, Dr. Les Hughes, had a vision for the church to look like Louisville, to look like the nations, to look like the New Testament, and ultimately to look like heaven. And so in line with his vision was a wonderful opportunity to provide a different kind of model. And so the dynamic of black leadership, that's an interesting thing. Um, If you search the library, you can find books on the black pastor, the black preacher. Historically, the black pastor and the black preacher has been something within the black community that the white preacher hadn't been in the white community. Ain't no books called the white preacher. Because in a very real way, because the church was the only thing that the black community had after emancipation, not political power, not economic power, not other things. In a a real way, the black preacher in a black setting, uh, especially up until recent decades, has been like the man. Whereas in white settings, the white pastor who loves the Lord and faithful still been like just a dude. I mean, you look at things like reverence, you look at things like kind of prestige and honor, all those things are just really different. And so just the dynamics of black leadership in a white setting, it's been so interesting just to understand just different perceptions of leadership and different, just different perceptions of who is the pastor, who is the preacher. And that's been some good stuff. That's been some real good stuff. <laughs> I told some people, like, I mean, I, I know how y'all used to dealing with the, some of these white brothers around here. And, I mean, I'm not telling you how to interact with them, but I ain't them. <laughs> so just differences of how we understand leadership. Les Hughes' vision is biblical. It's rooted in the New Testament. And Highview is desiring to be a model that can enhance our Southern Baptist attempts to reflect the glory of God and the unity of his people. I will tell you that, you know, there's challenges. I just mentioned, of course, the challenges of leadership perception, the challenges of a culture where the preacher has not really been 
the leader, but he's been like just one of the dudes and business executives in the church think they know more of the Bible than you know and have more insight into leading God's people. Political leaders in the church think they have more insight into what God would have the church do than you have. And so it's been challenges of leadership and just understanding different leadership dynamics between uh, uh, how things are perceived sometimes in black communities and how things are sometimes perceived in white communities. Then in any multi-ethnic setting, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, one of the great challenges is just heart language of worship. And I don't mean music as in musical, musical preferences. I just mean music as in how people express love for the Lord, joy in the Lord, and realizing that those things are different. I mean, I preach all over Southern Baptist life, and sometimes the church is so quiet, and I'm like, well, I hope they like the word. And then people come up, and they shake their hands after the sermon, and they have tears in their eyes, and they're trembling and everything. You're like, okay, they, they, they just listen differently. I mean, the churches I come from, when the preacher is preaching the word and you agree with the word, folks are like glory, folks are like hallelujah, folks are like moving. I mean, at Highview, I mean, when, when, when Highview is shouting, this is what white folk do. <laughs> and, and so when, when brothers come, I say, look, man, the clap is the shout. <laughs> Don't look for the shout. The clap is the shout. I say, <laughs> And so then just understanding our differences and then the bottom line, and Sister Trillia referenced this, is just community. The community of friendship, the community of doing life together. Recently, my wife had, a sur- had surgery, and just the sisters gathering around her was just so fresh and so encouraging. And then in Highview, and then in Southern Baptist life in general, whether I'm in East Tennessee or West Kentucky, I just love the magical moment of preaching the gospel, exalting the Lord Jesus Christ, and having some old white lady come up and say, I grew up in a racist family. I grew up with all kind of crazy thoughts. I've been in some wrong places. She said, but that gospel is so good, and you are my brother. And I don't know if you know, there's just a certain kind of way white ladies can put your face in their hands, and it just feels so good. So why would a black pastor want to pastor a white church? I'm only 47, 48. But I want to die trying to do what Jesus called us to do and obey the scripture rather than die being comfortable, being a maintainer and making excuses. Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. If you'd like more information about this topic, visit ERLC.com and tune in next week as we're challenged to consider the hardships of adoption.